Hello and welcome to the Berkeley Remix, a podcast from the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. I'm Martin Meeker, director of the center. Founded in 1954, the center records and preserves the history of California, the nation, and our interconnected world. This season, we're bringing to life stories about our home, UC Berkeley, from our collection of thousands of oral histories. Please join us for our fourth season inspired by the university's motto, Let There Be Light, 150 Years at UC Berkeley. This is Episode 2, Berkeley Lightning, Computer Chip Design and the Rise of Silicon Valley, produced by Oral History Center's Paul Burnett. Silicon Valley. It's a real place, the valley roughly encompassed by Santa Clara County at the southern end of San Francisco Bay. But it's also a mythic place with just the right combination of top universities, electronics firms, defense dollars, and a concentration of rare, plucky college dropout geniuses who would go on to hatch world-changing technologies in suburban garages. We want to take some of that story apart a bit. The university that looms largest in nearly every story of the rise of Silicon Valley is near the heart of that actual valley, Stanford University. But about 30 miles north, on the eastern edge of the bay, lies the University of California, Berkeley, a long-standing rival to Stanford, if football is your game. Our story here focuses on this other university, a public, state university, that established institutions and teams to develop innovations that would make the culture of innovation in Silicon Valley possible. There are many different stories we could tell about Berkeley's role in the rise of Silicon Valley, from specific technologies such as flash memory to digital to analog conversion, also known as the hardware and software that make it possible for you to listen to me right now. We're used to hearing about how game-changing technology makes whole new ways of living and working possible. But what makes the game-changing technologies themselves possible? We're going to talk about Berkeley's contribution in this domain, a bit upstream from the technology we all know. The centerpiece of just about any discussion of Silicon Valley is the development of its namesake, the Silicon Microchip, a tiny wafer packed with an ever-growing number of all the components that make up an electronic circuit in this microscopic space, what comes to be called an integrated circuit. Chief among these components is the transistor, Transistors do many things, but among them is to act as a switch, which allows them to process digital information, the zeros or ones, much more efficiently and cheaply than two-based mainframe computers, the ones that used to fill up entire basements of office buildings and have less processing power than the smart appliances in your kitchen. When the transistor was invented, the race was on to increase the density and number of transistors. There are a few reasons why you want to make these integrated circuits smaller and denser. For one thing, they work better and more efficiently, and you can cram them into small spaces, such as at the tip of a missile, for example. But imagine how tricky they are to make. Here is Berkeley engineering professor Paul Gray explaining the dimensions of the microchip. Well, the chip I built, it was probably 50 mils by 100 mils. A mil is a thousandth of an inch, so that would be a tenth of an inch in one dimension, and one twentieth of an inch in the other dimension, something like that. And I think it had, I don't know, five or ten transistors on it. Here is Gray on making chip prototypes. What was hard was actually building the device itself. You know, we're, we're talking about building a chip in a micro lab in a university. I think I might have been the 
third or fourth person that had ever built a chip in that lab, and and just getting it to function. You know, uh, you know, the furnace isn't at the right temperature. The photoresist doesn't develop right. The, you know, the package doesn't work right. The, just a thousand things would go wrong. And so I can't remember how many tries. It took me a lot of tries to get a chip that actually worked right. right. And that part was challenging. And here is Larry Nagel, who was a student at Berkeley's microelectronics lab in the 1960s. Uh, being a little bit clumsy, uh, we had to make up for a couple of times when things got dropped and things got otherwise messed up. So uh, uh, I guess I was probably uh, working maybe four weeks at that before I had a chip that actually worked. Now, this was not normal, routine work for an electrical engineering student in the 1960s. Just a handful of universities that had links to the electronics industry and to military research had founded specialized microelectronics labs by the early 1960s. Here's Dr. Gray again. Berkeley had started the country's first laboratory in which you could fabricate an integrated circuit. And that was in the about 63, 64 time frame. Uh, and Don Peterson who was the faculty member here who really spearheaded the establishment of that laboratory. Now, in that era, Stanford and MIT also were starting. I think Berkeley was the first, and then Stanford and MIT, a year or two or three later, also got on the same track. Berkeley and Stanford and MIT basically continued for the next oh, a couple of decades as the main institutions with this fabrication capability. And we still have a big lab. That building right there is the, uh, the Citrus Building has a huge fabrication lab in it. So UC Berkeley was the first university in the country to have a microchip fabrication facility. But that's just the beginning. You have to understand that making microchips by hand is hard, really hard and time-consuming. Just to build the circuit alone would probably take a couple of days for a 100-transistor circuit, maybe maybe for a 20-transistor circuit a day, so one or two days, something of that order of magnitude. But actually measuring and, and getting the thing to work right, debugging it, that could take a good deal longer. That could take weeks. But from the time the microelectronics lab was founded until the end of the 1960s, the number of transistors on the same space on a chip went way up. Uh, we were building chips the, that had on the order of 100 transistors on them, and, and, and it's very difficult to predict uh, with by building a physical breadboard or prototype out of discrete components how a chip like that's going to behave electrically. You really needed circuit simulation, even at that point, a program that would simulate the electrical behavior of a circuit. Now, if a computer program could do the work of prototyping a circuit, you wouldn't have to waste time building dud after dud. As a student at the University of Arizona, Paul Gray had learned about the work at Berkeley from his mentor, David Holland. And when Gray went off to work down in the valley at Fairchild Semiconductor, right around the time that Gordon Moore and others split off to found Intel, he recognized the importance of the work that Berkeley researchers were doing. I do remember having a lot of connections with universities in general, Berkeley and Stanford, on various topics. Uh, of course, we were in an industrial park created by Fred Terman, owned by Stanford. We were on their their land. Uh, uh, but, you know, I don't remember having a sense of a Stanford um, um, 
dominance of the landscape in terms of university engagements. Uh, the Ber for reasons I'm going to explain in just a minute, we had a lot of interaction with Don with the Berkeley people uh, over the computer for, because of the computer-aided design activity. And Don, uh, would, uh, we'll get into this a little bit later, but Don uh, and his group here at Berkeley was developing that kind of simulator, and we needed that. So we got a connection going, and we got one of their early versions of Spice. Uh, I think it was called something else at that point. And cancer, use that I cancer, maybe. Can I think it was yes, yeah. yeah. And um, uh, so that's how I got to know Don. Spice, cancer. These are strange, if cool, names for software, but this will all be explained later. As a result of his reaching out to Berkeley to get a hold of this computer program called Cancer, Paul Gray was invited to Berkeley to teach for a year, and then he joined the faculty where he got the backstory on what this software was all about. First of all, Berkeley engineering was structured for this interaction between computing and electronics. Second, and more importantly, there was a leading light of the electrical engineering department named Donald Peterson, who made computer-aided design a priority. Somewhere in the, uh, in the early 60s, Don had recognized this need for computer simulation. And back in those days, you could still try out your design by building a, what they called a breadboard. And you plug discrete devices in and it mimicked the chip, how the chip was going to behave. That was pretty ineffective anyway, but once you got bigger than 100, it became completely impossible to do that. Don recognized very early the way things were going, it was going to be essential. And you know, it was one of those early interdisciplinary things. To, to build an effective simulator of electronic circuits, you have to have somebody that knows devices and models the behavior of the transistors properly. You have to have somebody that understands computer numerical analysis and how you actually solve differential equations on a computer on a large scale. And you have to have circuits people who understand what's needed. The other piece of the story is the fact that UC Berkeley is an institution of higher education, and students need to be taught in an efficient manner. So Don Peterson asked Ron Rohrer to develop a graduate course where the challenge was to have the students build the design software. Here's Dr. Nagel again. I would say, actually, the, the, the major emphasis of the simulation programs that were developed at Berkeley were more as teaching tools so that students could actually get a first-hand, again, Don was an intuitive guy, by running circuits on a computer, you could get an intuitive feel for how the circuit would work, something that would take hours and hours and hours if you were to do it in the lab. Because you could, in one night, you could build five different variations of a, some particular circuit, simulate it, and have, have your results of which, which variation worked the best. That would be hours and maybe days of, of laboratory work. And um, by doing it on a computer, the entire class, yeah, I mean, it, it no longer was just a graduate exercise. Undergraduates could uh, also enjoy this thing. But the first graduate class to get this program built was intense, to say the least. And of course, Ron came in the first day and said, well, for those of you who think this is going to be a course on circuit synthesis, uh, you're in for a shock because this is going to be a, a course on circuit simulation. And you guys are going to learn how to learn all about circuit simulation by writing a circuit simulator. And the judge for how well you do will be Don Peterson. If he likes the program that you write, you'll all get A's. If he doesn't like the program you write, you'll all fail. 
Well, and this, Ron was a very brash guy, and definitely, so immediately half the class turned white as a sheet and, uh, and left the room, <laughs> and were gone. Building on a number of earlier versions, Larry Nagel's cancer program was the result of that class. Cancer meant computer analysis of nonlinear circuits, excluding radiation. Here's Larry Nagel explaining the significance. I have to give credit to my first wife, who uh, came up with that name. Uh, we were all sitting trying to figure out a name for the program, and she came to pick me up, take me home for dinner. And so we were talking, oh, we don't, what should we call this? And she said, well, why don't you call it cancer? Because that's what it's giving you. I, at the time, I was a very heavy pipe smoker. And so we, the wheels started turning, and I said, well, cancer, computer, computer analysis, computer analysis of nonlinear circuits, excluding radiation. Because we were very proud of the fact that, that we developed this program with no money from the government. Uh, at a time when the government was heavily funding research into uh, uh, radiation effects on circuits because we were, uh, at the time, very much worried about some kind of a nuclear event uh, uh, disabling our missiles. So that's how we got the excluding radiation, because we weren't doing radiation. No, we were Berkeley at the time, right? I mean, this was Berkeley. This was not MIT. This was Berkeley. So that's how cancer got started. So you had institutional innovations, a microelectronics lab, and a teaching approach that focused on computer-aided circuit design, resulting in this technical innovation. But a critical piece of this innovation was not technical at all. It was legal and social. Larry Nagel's SPICE, or Simulation Program with Integrated Circuit Emphasis, was central to this part of the story as was UC Berkeley's status as a public university. I like to think that SPICE was actually the first open source project, way back before there was such a thing as open source. But uh, Don Peterson had a very strong belief that anything that was developed at a public institution should be in the public domain. So all of the Berkeley programs were available free of charge, or, or basically for the charge, for whatever it costs to load the tape, load the program onto a tape. So the fact that the, this program was for free had an enormous impact uh, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, first of all, the program was, was made available to anybody, so it diffused very quickly out to all various different universities. And all the students that uh, learned to use SPICE took it with them to industry. So it wasn't at all long after the original release of Spice, 1971, that basically every major integrated circuit manufacturer had their own version of Spice. There was a TI Spice at Texas Instruments. There was a uh, 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 ADI Spice at Analog Devices. There was a, a uh, after I graduated, there was a program called Advice which was developed at Bell Laboratories and used at Bell Laboratories. So I basically took SPICE and converted it to proprietary programs. So each major company had their own proprietary version of SPICE. Uh, Don's deal was that you can have the program for free, but if you find a, a bug in it and fix it, you, ha- you have to give it back to us. You have to tell us what the bug is and how you fixed it. 
And uh, uh, so there were, there were several generations of students that kept, kept improving. Spice improved because you had this entire base of industry feeding, feeding information back. I think for Don, it was really a matter of principle. Uh, he didn't do a, a cost-benefit analysis. He just said, this is, this is how it has to be. We're a public institution. We have to make it public, publicly available. But if you, if you go back and look at the, uh, in, in retrospect, you know, in hindsight, uh, the reason that the program became as widely accepted as it did was largely because it was freely available to everyone. And uh, anybody could walk out of Cory Hall with a tape and they had their version of Spice. That process went on for a long time. Uh, I think the last version of Spice that was, was released was Spice 3 and that was in, in 1980s. So we're talking about Berkeley being pretty much a Spice factory for 15, maybe even 20 years. Long story short, uh, within 10 or 15 years of that point in time, every circuit design engineer in the world was using some flavor of a derivative of spice. It became an, an industry standard. The industry wouldn't really exist without that kind of simulation capability because you sim- once you get it to thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of transistors, it's the only way you can do design. So it was a huge innovation and had a, an incredible impact and set a great model for how many others emulated that public domain model of public dissemination. That was a big part of the landscape here at Berkeley. And so is the Silicon Valley phenomenon really just about Stanford, chip companies in the valley, and amateur hobbyists? If you ask the random citizen on the street in anywhere in the Bay Area, they would, uh, they would think Stanford was way, way more important than Berkeley. Uh, I think way, way more important is not correct. Uh, we did a lot, and it, this is only one. There are lots of innovations. I mean, there are dozens of things that have become industry standard practices that originated here. There's plenty of credit to go around. So what does this mean? The development of computer-aided design greatly facilitated experimental research in the design of new microchips. But there's something even more fundamental going on here. First, easy availability of quasi-open source software encouraged commercial development of new chip designs without making it prohibitively expensive to do so through proprietary licensing, copyright, and other legal devices. But Berkeley's model still allowed companies to make a version of the software that they could own. UC Berkeley deliberately went down a different road as a direct consequence of its hardwiring as a public university. The second pivot point here is the separation of design from manufacturing. This software and all of its descendants allowed companies to focus on the more profitable end of microchip design and to outsource the much more expensive part of the process, manufacturing, to other companies and eventually to other countries. There are consequences to that, environmental and socioeconomic and otherwise, that we can't cover here. But suffice it to say that in 2015, there was only a handful of microchip fabrication facilities in the United States, with exports of around $40 billion. But worldwide revenue from microchip sales from U.S.-based companies, most of which were in Silicon Valley, topped $166 billion. 
This is just one example of the influence that UC Berkeley's Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science has had on the size, character, and global leadership of Silicon Valley. It was a combination of social, legal, and technical innovation that struck the valley with lightning force and in turn accelerated change and growth in the semiconductor industry to this very day. For more about these stories, visit the Oral History Center website at ucblib.link forward slash OHC and search across our entire collection or through the full interviews with Paul Gray and Lawrence Nagel. This podcast was written, narrated, and edited by Paul Burnett. The Berkeley Remix theme music by Paul Burnett. All interviews in this episode are from the Oral History Center collections. The Lawrence Nagel interview is unpublished, but used with his permission. To learn more about these interviews, visit our website listed in the show notes. I'm Martin Meeker. Thank you for listening to the Berkeley Remix, and please join us next time.